We continue the Shir and Navi Nach Ksuvim history story. This is the story of Daniel, the Sefer Daniel. Daniel lived at the time of the destruction of the first Beis Hamikdash during the exile in Babel. Remember that it was Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babel, Babylon, which today is known as Iraq. At that time, Babylon was so great and so powerful, Nebuchadnezzar is listed in the Torah as one of the very few kings that actually conquered, vanquished the entire world, the entire globe, including, obviously, the American Indians who once under the power of Babylon. They were better off then, I'd say. Now, the king Nebuchadnezzar, you recall we had the history of the destruction of the first base of Mikdash. At that time, he took Yehoiakim captive, and then eventually, Sidkiyahu, the last king of the Jews, became king. He was captured by Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babel. He was blinded, and the king took all the Jews, sent them into exile to Babel. Now, at the time when he attacked Yehoiakim first, he removed some of the articles from the base Amikdash, from the Holy Temple, a certain number of articles. You know your Torah rules that the Beis HaMikdash has special articles and special places in the Beis HaMikdash, the table, the altar itself, the special candelabra, the menorah, with seven, which holds seven candles. And it's noteworthy to stress the point that if you ever see anywhere, especially in a shul, a candelabra or the shape of one, a metal candelabra with seven holders, you know that that is an illegal item against the law and the Torah very serious transgression because a seven candle menorah is reserved that number is reserved only for Hashem and the base Amikdash no Jew is ever allowed to either make one manufacture one or to maintain one in his home so if you find one it means that somebody committed a crime a sin in making it if you find a person who has it it is a sin in maintaining keeping it and certainly the shuls some shuls have the menorahs in front of the shul. If they have one of seven candles, then obviously the designer, the architect who built that shul, did not know Hebrew law. Now, those articles, most of them were taken by Nebuchadnezzar. Eventually, of course, the main destruction took place afterwards on Tisha B'Av, night day above, when he set fire to the base of Mikdash, to the entire city. He raised the city of Yishlein to the ground, and all the Jews were exiled. But at the time that he exiled, the Jews there came back to his own kingdom in Babel. Nebuchadnezzar was a great conqueror, but he knew, he was aware of one thing, that a kingdom without wisdom cannot succeed. A king can succeed only if he has advisors. If a king should have no wise men to guide him, then his kingdom would be very short-lived. So, using this as his motto, he set aside a special committee headed by special officer Ashpenaz. Ashpenaz was a very stern leader, one of the ministers of the king, and he gave him the mission, the duty to go out among the Jews and to select from the leading families, especially from the family of King David, the royal family, select the youth, youngest ones, bring them to Babel put them into a special school, teach them every type of subject, every type of language possible, especially the language of the Babylonians themselves, and prepare them to serve before the king. 
as part of the king's advisory committee as his cabinet. This officer, Ashpenaz, went out among the Jews in the family of King David. He selected many, but especially he picked out four. These four were among those he selected, uh, which proved to be the leaders later. The four were Daniel and Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. These were four very close friends. They were brought to this special school, a dormitory, and there they were given special instructions, taught the different specialties, mathematics, music, the different chachmas, they call the seven chachmas, seven types of wisdom, and they were given a diet. This diet was called pasbag. Now, this pasbag means it is called the food of the king. This royal diet, it does not state exactly what it was, but it could not have been kosher. And that is why the Torah says that Doniel approached the officer in charge and requested that he and his three friends be excused from eating this food, the king's food. And the officer said that he wouldn't mind granting their request, but it is his obligation, his responsibility, to present these boys before the king in a, a healthy status. If he would bring them and they would be emaciated, starved, he'd be blamed and punished for it. Daniel said to this officer, you feed us vegetables only and give us a 10-day trial. If at the end of these 10 days you find that we have lost any weight, then you can stop. He agreed to this, and after 10 days he found that these four boys were more robust, more healthy than any of the others, despite the fact they ate, they existed only on vegetables and nothing else. In the Zedek Kodesh, there's very little mention made about this pasbag. What was this royal diet? Why was Daniel so heavily set against it? Was it that the food was unkosher, in the sense of kashrus, the meat was not glut kosher, they couldn't buy it, they didn't get it, that a special pure kosher butcher? The answer is, the Zayde Kodesh says, it was not because of the kashrus of the meat. It was that he could have avoided himself. He could have slaughtered the animal himself, requested that he be allowed to slaughter it, then salt the meat, remove the blood, and would have kosher meat. The problem was that this was at the insistence of the king a meal where meat and milk were mixed. This the Zayde Kodesh Foshim say, pas means bread, a meal of bag, bag stands for basar gavina, which means meat and dairy, zephyr and leban, or milchiks and fleshiks. The combination of these two, which is strictly forbidden by the Torah, why it is forbidden, Again, important to note, as Lady Kodesh says, it is a chayk, which means that it is basically a law whose reason was not revealed to any living being. No person today can know the true reason. There are many conjectures, many guesses taken at it. No one can really state that he knows the reason because it was not revealed to the Jews in the Torah. Of course, it is called a chiddush. That word, a chiddush, means something remarkable or unusual, because we very rarely ever find that two positives make a negative. Here you have two positives. Positive, take the most kosher meat in existence. Purest, glad kosher meat you could find. Take the best milk, the freshest, whole of Israel. Two items that individually are as pure and as kosher and as fit to be eaten or drunk by the most meticulous, kosher-minded person. Put these two positives together, and you have an explosive 
that is far worse than any other trefa item, because even pig's meat, which is as trefa as pig, is still permissible to be used for other purposes than eating. You're allowed to feed pig's meat to a goy or to a dog or to a yagush, but you cannot feed milk and meat together to any living thing. You're not even allowed to use milk which has a mixture of meat in it use that, let's say, to wash the floors with. It cannot be used at all. There's no hano, no pleasure may be derived from that. That's how strict that ordinance is. Now, this mixture of milk and meat, which is a chayk, was what the king tried to feed these youths that were assembled there to study. And because of the fact that these four made this self-sacrifice to live, to exist on simple vegetables, on greens, Therefore, they were blessed with a gift from heaven that they absorbed the wisdom much more readily and retained it much more so than any of the other students there. So, at the end of the period of time of study, which was three years, you recall we had the previous class, the Gemara class, Lishnu the Kastam the Kola, the Gemara Chulun. We have a class here in Chulun, and everyone recalls we had a class speaking about the time it takes to study the language of custom above El, Gemara says is three years. Of course, most of you were present then, since. So, in these three years, these were presented before the king. They found favor in the eyes of the king. The king tested their wisdom, and he elevated them to one of the highest ranks. Now, the king was so impressed by these four that he renamed them. Doniel was called Belchatzar, and of course, the first syllable is the name of the Babylonian idol, the idol of Babylon. The next two words, Chatzar, is Tash Tsar. Tash means one who guards the Tsar, Otsar means treasure, one who guards the treasure of the king, which means that he possessed a wisdom that which the king treasured most. The other three, Ananya, Mishael, and Azariah were called Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. There was once a song by that title. Those who are acquainted with songs shows how important music is. You'd know the names of the three friends of Daniel in Babylonian. These are special names given to them. And of course, this was the custom then, just as we find that Paro called Yosef HaTzadik Tzofnas Paneach. When a king elevates a person to a high rank, he gives him a special name, a sense, a royal name. Now, these four were very close to the king, but not that close where the king would spend time with them personally, until the time came when something occurred whereby Daniel became famous. This is actually the beginning of the story, the main part of the story of Daniel. very unusual event took place. Two years after the destruction of the base of Mikdash, after... Nebuchadnezzar had succeeded in conquering the world. He sat in peace on his throne. They began to think ahead. As the Mishnah says, the Gemara says that a Chacham is one who looks ahead to the future, a wise person. Nebuchadnezzar began to think ahead of what was going to happen to his kingdom after he passed away. He could not live forever. He realized that. What would happen to his empire afterwards? In fact, what's going to happen to this world? Since it was now, in a sense, his world, what would happen to this world eventually, or in the far distant future? What was the outcome 
the prognosis of the entire world. The Gemara says that when a person thinks about something, he concentrates deeply, then usually, in most cases, he's going to dream about it. The dream will consist of these thoughts that dwell upon his mind. And so that night, Nebuchadnezzar dreamed, and he awoke in the morning. His heart beat very rapidly, very nervously, because he was extremely upset. His heart beat doubly so. You recall there was a case of Paro, king of Egypt, who had a dream, two dreams. He awoke in the morning very nervous too, because he felt that these dreams had a portent. They had a prediction for the future. He did not know how to interpret the dream. Therefore, he called his magicians, interpreters to him, until finally, Yosef Hatzadik interpreted the dreams. In this case, there was a double worry on the part of Nebuchadnezzar. Because he recalled that he had dreamed, he recalled that it was an outstanding dream, but he not only did not know the interpretation of the dream, he even forgot the entire dream itself. He could not recall at all what the dream was about. This, of course, made him sick with worry. So he decided that here's a chance to have his magicians, interpreters, wise men finally earn their salary. What was he paying them for? Let's test their wisdom. He summoned his leading wise men, the magicians, the stargazers. In those days, they could actually read the stars. The astrologers could foretell the future through the stars then, not now, of course. And he summoned them, and he said to them, I have a problem for you. And they said, Your Majesty, anything. He said, fine. I have a dream. I must know the interpretation of this dream. And they said, absolutely. Tell us what you dreamt, Your Majesty, and we will interpret the dream immediately to your satisfaction. And he said, tell you what I dreamed was the trick. I want you to tell me what I dreamed and to interpret. Now, for that, it's not going to be free. I'm not asking for it without pay. If you tell me what I dreamt and interpret it correctly, I'm going to make you very wealthy. You'll have a, a royal ransom as a reward. If you do not tell me the, the dream as interpretation, why then you're going to have a very short life, extremely short. Now this, of course, made them slightly nervous. And they began to plead with the king. And they said to him, it is impossible. We must ask you again to tell us the dream. We will interpret the dream as you wish, but please tell us what you dreamt, and we'll do it. At this point, the king became furious. and said to them, now I know that you are lying, because when you said you will interpret the dream, I know now that your interpretation would have been false. Since you cannot tell me what I dreamt, there's no way that I can prove now whether you're telling the truth when you interpret. So in order for me to know that your interpretation is the truth, you've got to first tell me what I dreamt, and then I'll know that your interpretation will be a correct one. As far as lying about the interpretation, you probably think you can now lie about the dream too. You'll make up a story what I dreamt to say you make up a story about the interpretation also. I tell you that I do recall some of the dream. So you cannot put anything over on me, and your lives are now at stake. At this point, the leaders of the wise men spoke up and said, Your Majesty, you must give pause, think, reconsider the fact that there does not exist any human being on this earth 
who has the power to delve into a person's mind and to bring up something which is not there. If, even if a person had the power of mind reading, they could tell what a person is thinking of. But if the mind is blank, how do you draw something from an empty well? So there exists no one on earth who can really tell you the answer to your question. Perhaps, perhaps the angels in heaven could do that. But no human being on earth. The king replied to this, there is no way out for you. I hereby issue a decree that every single one of the magicians, stargazers, wise men, advisors must be put to death forthwith. He appointed an executioner to handle this. His name was Aryoch. Aryoch means a leader, like a lion, a killer, to go out and kill every one of these wise men. This Aryoch was a killer. He used to be a hitman for, but he was given this mission, this task, this chore of killing the wise men. And though he was an executioner, he did not enjoy wiping out, eradicating all the, the top leaders of the kingdom. Yet he feared for his own life. This shows again the respect that the king was held in, where if he issued an order, a decree it was carried out. It would seem that the magicians, in order to defend themselves, would use magic to dispose of the king or assassinate him some way. There was no one who even entertained that thought. But this Aryach, the executioner, was very reluctant to do this. He would have given anything to escape this chore. He set out in rounding up all the wise men first. They were not killed one at a time. They were supposed to be rounded up and then to summarily execute every one of these Chacham, these wise men. It took a little while before Daniel found out about this king's order. So Daniel summoned his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, and told them it's up to us to go daven. Let us set aside a day for tefillah, prayer, and daven to Hashem for assistance. He went to this Aryoch and said to him, do not rush, do not hurry to execute the wise men, because it is very possible that I'll be able to help you. If I could offer myself to come before the king and to grant his request, his desire, to tell him his dream, plus the interpretation, there'd be no need for executing any of the wise men. Ayach was overjoyed, but he did not believe this was possible, so he said, I'll give you a short period of time, but afterwards I'll have to carry out the king's order. And so Daniel summoned his three friends, they closeted themselves, and they davened to Hashem. Daniel's tefillah was the kind of tefillah that is known as Hispanidus. This is what the says. It's very vital that we stress this point. Because at all times, at all times, the says, do not think. Abinazal we referred to Abinachmanzal, who lived a little less than 200 years ago, and who revealed this old, yet so new method of a person gaining access to the throne room at will, the throne of Hashem. Now, as explained, if a person wants to see the mayor, Mahavdil, then he makes an appointment. He may get to see the mayor during the four-year term of the mayor. If not, it'll be after he's deposed. The governor will take a longer while. The president, he might see him after he's assassinated or after his successor is. Try to get to see one of these important individuals and surely so to see a king. Much more so to see a surgeon. Unless you have something to excise, you cannot get to see these, the peak of gaiva, of 
conceit is found, medical profession, trying to see one of these top leaders of the profession, and it's harder than getting to see the king. You get to speak to one who can offer assistance, whether it's financial or other advice, you have to have that certain pull. At best, you've got to make an appointment. The appointment could be sometimes a week in advance, a month in advance, or more. Imagine wanting to see the king, or the king of kings. You want to speak not to a rich man who might give you the money and might not. Most probably he will not. To speak to a doctor who might be able to offer you a cure and might not, in most cases it is definitely not. To speak to one who can give you advice or assistance in a problem, where in most cases, of course, the odds are against it. To speak to one who possesses all these powers and who definitely can help, can affect a complete cure, complete assistance in every respect, King of Kings, the infinite, all-powerful, speak to Hashem, you do not have to make an appointment. There is no set time. There is no time established in heaven when you may come to speak to Hashem. Time, the appointment is up to you. At your own will, at your own free moment, you can suddenly turn and request the ear of Hashem. If a person has a problem of any kind whatsoever, and some problems are at times very tormenting, they can actually destroy a person's nervous system or cause worry and anguish where the person just falls apart. And he feels there's no, no means, no source of supply or assistance or solution to his problem. At any given moment, the person can turn, go into a private room, and immediately begin to speak to Hashem, and Hashem is listening immediately. You will not get the reply, I'm busy now, I'll come back in five minutes or a month later. The second you start to speak to Hashem, know that Hashem is there and is all attentive. Every word you have to say, no matter how trivial it may sound, you need a pair of shoes. This example given by the person needs a pair of shoes. He doesn't have the money at the moment. Now, isn't it embarrassing to come before a king and say, Your Majesty, I have a request. What would you like? A castle? A mansion? Would you like a better job? No. I need a pair of leather shoes or canvas shoes. That's what you came to the palace to bother me about? You'd be ashamed to, to come before a king. In fact, before anyone. You can come before Hashem and say, Hashem, I have a problem. My problem is that I'm short a few dollars this week. I don't want a loan. I want a gift. I want you to bestow upon me a blessing that I may earn. I may receive this money easily, without difficulty. My earnings are short, my expenses are great, my wife asked for additional funds and I want to have peace at home. Please bless me with a better panasa, better livelihood. Or, as for sure, I have somebody in the family that is sick. I myself am not too well, I'm ill. Instead of going to a doctor, paying out, and having a doctor say, come back for another 36 visits, come to Hashem, and in one single visit, if your tefillah, if your prayer, privately, this private communion, is very sincere and very heartfelt words coming from the heart, they will penetrate the heavenly heart of Hashem, and Hashem will deliver that cure to one-time complete cure. You know you come to the right source. If a person has a greater problem than that, <clears throat> if he finds that he is weak, very weak spiritually, 
I would like to be much more obedient to Hashem's commands, Hashem's mitzvahs. I want to do the mitzvahs of Hashem with a much greater degree of faith, happiness, will, and I find myself weak. I find myself succumbing, surrendering to the evil inclination, to the Yitzhahara. A satan attacks, and I haven't got the strength to battle, to take him on in battle. And it's very embarrassing to come before Hashem and say, Hashem, you gave me a mitzvah in the Torah, and I've broken it. Mitzvah says, do not steal. I couldn't help pilfering, shoplifting. Mitzvah says, do not eat on kosher. I went into a place where I was offered something I couldn't refuse. I could, but I didn't. And I ate the, the food that was on kosher. I'm not supposed to look at things that are forbidden, go into places that are improper, immoral. I couldn't contain myself. My willpower was weak. I fell. I was a victim to my Yitzhahara. And therefore, I ask of you, Hashem, two things. One, in your kindness and compassion, forgive what I did. Forgive my act against you. Secondly, strengthen me now that I should be able to combat this evil inclination. I should become a better servant, serve you much better. And this meeting with Hashem, as Abenazel describes it, like you'd speak to a very close friend, one who's anxious to help you, this can be at any time and as often as you like. There's no limit to this. There's no price to pay for these meetings. Psychiatric assistance, no bills to pay, no funds, no expenses. Anytime, day or night, as many times as you like, come before Hashem privately to speak to Him. This is the key to every single Jew in elevating himself, becoming more religious, becoming a better person, physically, materially, spiritually. And this is the secret of the power of the tzaddikim. Every tzaddik that ever existed, from the beginning of time, until the end of time, until Mashiach, every single tzaddik was elevated to his high madrega, his high level and high status, through the power of his bodhis. It's not just davening regularly in the morning, shachras, minchamar, but this additional private tefillah called his bedidus, that's how Eliyahu spent his time in the cave. He was there during the period of time, the cave in Haifa. Abedazel was there and said, this is where he spent his time in his bedidus. This is how these tzaddikim arrived at the level of kedusha of holiness. So that certainly, in the case of Doniel, how was he to achieve the power of a miracle? Only through tefillah, through prayer. And of course, the tefillah must be a very sincere, deep-felt tefillah. Every word must be said humbly, with feeling, and concentration on what you're saying. You're davin shmona esrei, a silent prayer, davin da Hashem too. In most cases, the feeling is missing, is lacking, and the concentration is not there person can stand before Hashem and daven the silent prayer at Tfilah his mind is completely on a different topic. That is the first rule of Tfilah, to avoid hesachadas, avoid your mind wandering. You speak to Hashem, do not let your mind wander. This was the case of Doniel and his three friends, they were mispalel to Hashem, and Doniel walked out after this Tfilah, came to Aryoch, of course, it's interesting to note what the tefillah of Daniel was. This, too, is an interesting point, because we know that tefillah consists of two parts. One is shavach, praise to Hashem. The second is the request. 
And all tefillah we start with the words Baruch Atah Hashem means blessed, praise the you Hashem. And this is a requirement, not that Hashem needs our words of praise, Chas Vashon. It's just that we acknowledge, in these words we acknowledge our faith in Hashem. When a person has a muna, that is synonymous with tefillah. You cannot daven, you cannot pray unless you have a muna, faith in Hashem, you davening to. So the words of Daniel were, he began with tefillah with Yehesh Merabba Mavorach. First, may the name of Hashem be blessed forever and ever. With this opening, he said Hashem, the all-powerful, the infinite, who controls the weather, controls the times, the changes. We find the changes of weather are so intricate that they baffle even the tiny micro-minds of the Weather Bureau who can never fathom the changes in weather. We know that every time they say something, they get lost before they finished. And this is because Hashem changes the weathers without notifying the Weather Bureau about it. And this is the power of Hashem, where the Gemara says that rain and the elements are so reserved for Hashem that Hashem never allows even the greatest of angels the power to rule over these elements. And then, in addition to this, Daniel's made a statement which is rarely used for those who know the Zarah Kodesh. There it is used often in reference to the highest of the spheres. And he said that Hashem is in a place of light. Hashem Kaviachal rests in the greatest light and knows what is doing in the places of darkness. Well, this is to bring out, we cannot, of course, define or describe something heavenly. We surely cannot have any conception of the greatness of Hashem because our minds are limited to the physical. But this is one of the items brought in the Zodiac Kodesh where we could understand a little. We know that physically, normally, if a person is in a lighted room, he cannot see into the darkness. A person in the dark can see to the light. The one in a very bright room this light is shining into his eyes, cannot see beyond that light into the place where it is dark. Kamech in the case of Hashem, this world is called the world of darkness. Above it, the world of the angels are called the world of greater light. Paradise is still greater light. The heavenly world, the throne of Hashem, is we, all these are termed as light. Brighter and brighter light, the only definition we can use or application. So, therefore, the highest of the heavens, Kamech, where the spirit of Hashem is, and there is the brightest light of all, the light of the Keser, the crown of Hashem. It's so bright that all other lights are considered dark compared to it. There Hashem is, and yet no one below in the dark places can see to that light, while Hashem in this point of the greatest degree of light can see everything in the darkness. This was the preface to Doniel's Tefillah, and... When he completed his tefillah, he prayed to Hashem to be granted the wisdom to be able to, to fulfill the king's request. He came out to the executioner and told him, Now, bring me to the king. I am prepared to face the king with the information he seeks. Ayach brought the before the king in a hurry, because he couldn't believe it himself. He was that excited. He came before the king, and the king was duly impressed that a person would even offer to volunteer to tell the king what he had dreamt. Of course, Daniel had a very impressive appearance. He looked royal because he was from the family of King David. So the king said to Daniel, speak. 
Leo said to the king, I must first point out that there is no human being on earth that can ever hope to tell a king what he dreamt. That's impossible. Even the true interpretation would not be one for an ordinary wise person. But to reveal what was in your mind at one time is impossible for the wisest of all men. Therefore, I must state that it is Hashem, the Hashem of the Jews, Hashem in heaven, who has granted me this information. So that when you see the truth of my statement, know that the credit goes to Hashem, and it's up to you, as the king of Bavel, as the king who worships the idols of Bavel, to recognize the superiority of the Hashem of the Jews. This was a daring statement to begin with. The king was curious enough to hear the rest of it, and so he remained silent. Then Daniel said to the king, you were lying in your bed, and it came to your mind the thought, who is going to rule after you? Then you fell into a deep sleep, and you had a dream, you saw a vision. In this vision you saw the form of a giant person, like a human being, giant size, a very strange apparition, because the head of this being was made of pure gold up till the throat. From there, the shoulders, the chest, the arms were made of pure silver, which means one level lower. From that point on, the torso, the hips were made of copper, again a level lower, and the legs down were made of iron, till the bottom of the legs were a mixture of iron and feet of clay. The clay was mixed with iron. There was no pure iron or pure clay. It was a mixture of iron and clay at the point of the feet. This figure you saw, you stood looking at it in amazement, and then from nowhere there suddenly appeared a stone, a large rock. It seemed to come from nowhere. This rock heaved itself at the legs, at the feet of this figure, and destroyed, pulverized the legs into sand, crushed it completely, and then attacked the rest of the body. In a moment, the entire body caved in and merged in itself until it turned to dust, and the wind carried it away, was completely gone. This rock then began to increase in size until it became a giant size mountain that covered the entire earth. This was the vision, the dream you had. The kings remained there dumbfounded because this was brought back to his mind. Imagine the feeling, the awe, of hearing from someone something which was truly impossible for a human being to bring up. So now he knew for certain that the interpretation by Doniel would definitely be the truth. He awaited the meaning of this dream, but as we know, the Gemara says that when a king has a dream, it is never anything personal. This was the case of Paro, King Pharaoh, and his interpreters, who offered the interpretation of his dream when he dreamt about the seven lean cows swallowing the seven heavy cows, seven stalks swallowing the seven heavy ones, and they said it meant that he would have seven sons and seven daughters. Things pertaining to his private life, he rejected their interpretation because he knew this was for an ordinary individual, not for a king to dream. Yosef HaTzadik told him this meant something that would affect the country and the world, 
He knew this was the truth. So now he awaited the interpretation by Daniel of this dream. Daniel said, your dream does deal with the future, but not the future of the country of Babylon. It deals with the future of the entire world until the end of time. This, he said, I will interpret. The head of gold represents you. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babel, one case, but we have a king who rules supreme over the entire world. The entire world means that you rule over everything that exists, not only over the nations on earth, but even over all living beings. Nebuchadnezzar was so great that the Torah says he would not ride a horse. He rode astride a lion, and around his head, instead of a crown, he carried a band, a serpent, a poisonous snake. Show his power that he ruled over the animals and over the, the most powerful of creatures. Therefore, this head of gold is the symbol of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babel. But once you leave, Babel will fall victim. Babel will be destroyed, taken over by the second kingdom that will be the kingdom of Persia which will conquer Bavel which will be very powerful too because the king of Persia also will practically rule over the entire world and therefore he is compared to silver he in turn will be conquered by the kingdom of Greece then will come the kingdom of Rome the Turks and the Romans they will be the ones that will threaten most the chosen people of Hashem that is the interpretation of this stone that you saw. That is the ultimate. That interpretation we will continue next Monday, plus an additional vision, even more amazing than this one, to complete partially the story of Daniel. Again, the most important point involved here is that a Jew should know everything that recurs in the world occurs so because of the act the will of Hashem.